On the first Sabbath of the school year, we've dropped down into the middle of something. It's an action adventure. It's one of these scenes, make a decision, hurry, because someone's going to die. It's like every great story you love. Where are you, you Thor people? This is Thor. This is when Hela wants to rule Asgard and Loki and Thor. None of them can take her. Something has to happen. This is Star Wars. Come on, the last one, episode eight. This is when, when the Imperial Army is at the front door and Skywalker and Kylo Ren. Something has to happen, right? Pick your story. You want Moana or Bambi? How about this? Here's a classic. When the Von Trapp family is done singing on the stage and they go to the Abbey and they hide behind, right? And we're all being quiet. But Rolf's out in front and he hears them and he blows the whistle and they all run. We're at this moment in the Bible story today. Something has to happen. This is a do or die kind of moment. Moses has them out now of Egypt and they're free moving into the desert but something has to happen in our story we drop into the middle of this and it's important for us to name that we're dropping into the middle of this there are dozens hundreds of stories in scripture like this do or die moments when something has to happen and we hope God will show up and be God this is what the slaves hope for that Moses is leading out into the desert now they are slaves, friends. Exodus chapter 14, they've just now come. They're coming out of slavery. God is keeping God's promise to make them free. They've been slaves for 430 years. I don't know what I'm talking about this morning because I know nothing of slavery. Do, do you? I know nothing of slavery. That If this was my parents' story and my grandparents' story, 430 years there was a famine in the land. This is how it started. And Pharaoh hoarded the grain. And so the Israelites bought some grain so they could eat. But when they ran out of money, they traded their cattle and their livestock. And when they ran out of animals, they began to trade their land. And when they ran out of land, all they have left is their, their bodies. Just let us live. It's an economic transaction. They become slaves in Egypt. They trade their birthright for a bowl of beans. Slavery, I don't know anything about it. I have to tell the truth this morning. When we drop down into these episodes in Scripture, I don't know anything about the heaviness of being worked. I don't know anything about the humiliation of being whipped, the horror of being owned. This has been their life for generations. Now they're running in the desert, and here's their mission impossible moment. When they look back, they see Pharaoh and his chariots, and when they look forward, they see the Red Sea. As one poet says, they are caught between the devil and the deep blue sea. They're not going back. They've done that. But they cannot see their way forward. This is when something needs to happen and they whine to God. The text says, the storyteller says, they're terrified. We know terrified people don't behave well, don't we? We've had a week of that. Terrified people, vulnerable people, usually we cry out against each other and we act out and we, we speak out and, and we tear one another down. The storyteller says they cry out to God and they tear one another down. They're terrified in this story. We would understand why. They don't have any way of knowing, though, friends, from where they're positioned, what tomorrow will be. They have no way of knowing. Is this the worst possible day of their life? 
Or could it get worse than this? They only have this one moment right now. Then they cry out to Moses. And Moses, he reminds them of a few things. I imagine a conversation the storyteller doesn't chronicle right here and now. These these people came to the desert with a history and a story, just like you have a family history and a story. They know from being in Egypt the night before last that God just spared them while Egyptians were dying. They celebrated something called the Passover because they lived through the night and that's the foundation of the communion meal we eat together. We'll do that in a few weeks here. They come to the desert with that story. They also come to the desert knowing that their grandmothers and their grandfathers trusted this God. God will provide as a message they've heard. You can trust this God. You can trust this God so much we want you to take our bones with you when you escape. They come to the desert with this family history, this family story, a a chant that Moses has given them. This is words from God, from God's being. I am the Lord your God bringing you out of Egypt. It will become a refrain for them like a bedtime lullaby. And lastly, they are in the desert terrified, but they have these visible signs. The Bible says that they've got this cloud by day and light by night. The Lord went in front of them with a column, a cloud. Wouldn't that be amazing if we woke up this morning and we could look to the sky and see a cloud and know that the divine one's right there? We could have said, good morning, God. Wouldn't it be fantastic if last night when we went to sleep, we could see a bright moonlight that never went away and we would know the divine one is there. Good night, God. I can lie down and sleep in peace. They have all of this, the terrified slaves, while they're in the wilderness, and still they're frantic. So we read the text. They're told, hey, stand still. Be quiet. Watch what the Lord is going to do. These were the instructions they were given. And then Moses is given a different set of instructions. The Lord says to Moses, why do you cry out to me? This is a fantastic sentence. Depending upon your Bible translation, your Bible translation might say, quit praying to me and get on with it. Isn't that something? Why are you crying out to me? God says to the leader, Moses, stop crying, stop praying, get on with it. I love this passage. Why do you cry? Tell the Israelites to move. As for you, Moses, go do a thing. Lift up your shepherd's rod. Stretch it out over the hand of the sea. Split the sea in two so the Israelites can go into the sea on dry ground. Me, God, I'll take my part too. I'll make the Egyptians so stubborn that they will follow after into the water. This is God and Moses. God tells Moses, get on with it. This is not your battle. You're not the savior of anything, Moses. Go tell the people, you don't have to worry. You're not in your own story. You're in my story now. So watch what's about to happen. And then it happens. God does a God thing. And they are on the other side of the water. And the Egyptian army is not. The Egyptian army doesn't survive. We know from this story. All of Exodus 15 then records what happens after they get to dry land as they look to heaven and they sing praise. All they can sing is praise. Exodus 15, verse 11, Miriam's song. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in splendor, doing wonders? 
You stretched out your hand, verse 12 says, your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. That just happened before our eyes. God uh, just did a God thing. And they stand on dry land and they announce this and they sing this. Grace indeed does know the way between the devil and the deep blue sea. You can trust this God. I wonder if the stories from the aunties and the uncles and the grandmas and the grandmas come forward. Oh, this must mean what you were talking about. We don't have to do anything for God to be God. No, God is God. It is a little easier. Tell me if I'm telling the truth. It is a little easier to have these kinds of moments. Wow, God just did a thing when God's just done a thing, right? When God just healed the body or healed the relationship or calmed the home or dropped the money. We got an envelope of money when I was, I think, 22 years old. We're living in Loma Linda as broke as broke can be. Kirby's in, in medical school down here. I'm working a job. And over time, we are broke, walking through the store with the calculator broke, putting groceries back broke. And an envelope arrives in my mail, stamped U.S. Post Mail. You know, the old kind. And I open it, and it's a $100 bill. And a note from someone who said, we were poor college students once, too. We only ask you pass the gift forward. Like, I'll do anything, God. I'll do anything. I'll do it. In that moment, right? Oh, my word. When God's doing a God thing, it's very simple to pause and say, thank you, God, for being God today. Thank you that grace knows the way between the devil in the deep blue sea. Those are the easier moments to have that conversation with God than the moments when we can't see God being God and we don't have the cloud and we don't have the lightning by night or the moonlight by night to assure us of God's presence. God being God. Who is your God today? We're asking this question for four weeks. We're beginning the school year this way. Who is your God today? I'm imagining you'll answer the question. You'll import your answer with all sorts of other background information, depending upon how your week has gone and your month has gone and your year has gone, depending on the voices in your ear, depending upon your aunties and uncles. There were 600,000 Israelites out there in the desert, but the storyteller says to us, they're not all God's from, from the Israelite tribe. Some of them are tagalong. Some of them are from other nations. They're all having all variety of experiences. How we answer the question today in these four weeks, who is your God? And how have you come to that conviction? Your answer will maybe sound different than mine and the person you're sitting next to. And we're okay with that at La Sierra. When I was at the Mission Inn, um, performing a wedding years and years and years ago. Have you stood in that St. Francis of Assisi Chapel? Some of us have. This is that gorgeous, stunning chapel with the Tiffany glass windows and this gold overlay altar in the front. The windows, I think, are 18th century. That gold altar is 17th century, came from Mexico. I just learned it arrived to the mission in, in pieces with no instruction manual how to put it together. It's a stunning room. You've been in that chapel, right? We were uh, in this chapel for a wedding a few years ago, and these are little guys' cousins, and someone's put the little bow tie and spit their hair down, and they're all cute for the wedding. 
and they're wandering in this chapel all by themselves before the wedding starts. They're tiny and they're looking up at all the icons, all the images, the pictures, the scenes, things they could never know what they're looking at. One little cousin says to the other little cousin, look at that one right there. It happens to be a bishop who has the head of a martyr in his hand. Christian history is not so pretty. The little guy's going, look at that one. It's a skeleton. Little cousin, I'm not going to look. I'm not going to look that scary. No, I'm not looking. No, you've got to look. There's like a, you know who it is? I don't want to know who it is, this little guy. I don't want to know who it is. No, you've got to look right now because it's Jesus. This little guy says, stands up tall. It is not Jesus. Jesus died on a cross. He didn't get his head cut off. No, it's Jesus. I'm, it is not Jesus. It's Jesus. No, this is how it went all the way till the wedding began. They're importing stories they've heard from parents and teachers and Sabbath school teachers and aunties and uncles and who is God and who is all this representation of God we're looking at in this chapel of St. Francis. It's overwhelming. How do you answer your question this morning? Who is this God, this three-letter word? All we have are these three letters. Our attempt at intimacy, attachment to something we cannot see and could not possibly describe or understand. Who is your God today? How is it that Michelangelo decides when he's painting the ceiling of the Vatican in in the museum there, in the chapel there, how is it he decides that God shall be an old man, muscular, with white hair and beautiful eyes and bronzed. How does he decide that? Informed, right, by all the storytellers who've come before, informed by the artists who've come before, informed by maybe his own reading of scripture. How does Michelangelo decide, well, God looks like this. And how does he decide he goes up here on the the highest point? He has to because we know what's down below, right? Like the story, we know how the story goes. The devil, isn't the devil down there? In his 2015 book, Nine Essential Things I've Learned, Rabbi Harold Kushner says a few things. I'm taking now to reading the books of the sages. This gentleman who's lived a lot of years. Rabbi Kushner says a few things in this chapter entitled, God is not a man who lives in the sky. And he reflects on looking at Michelangelo's painting on the ceiling and wondering how did Michelangelo come to decide God looks like us? And who informed his painting? He says, I don't believe God's a person who lives in the sky. For that matter, to speak of God as he represents what I believe now. But I'm a prisoner of the English language and I refuse to call God it. He goes on to reflect on this after living a lot of years, right? He goes on to say, I don't think God's a person like us who lives in the sky. God is real, but God is a very different kind of real. Rabbi Kushner comes to that opinion because some life has happened to him because the truth is when the healing doesn't come and the relationships don't come and we don't get the career track and we don't get the person we think we're going to live with forever, when we find ourselves in those dark places, this is actually where we work out 
Who is our God and how do we know? So we read with the Egyptians today, how did they know? Well, God did a great thing for them in the desert. But we're going to stick with them for a few weeks because it doesn't turn out like that in every episode. I hope you saw on the doors when you came in, the back door, the side entrances, this new expression of our church. It'll be there week after week after week. You'll be able to read on the wall banner. We gather in worship with the Bible open to hear fresh words from ancient sacred stories. We are always seeking to be relevant, raw, and wrestling. Depending on the spirit, we're a community of Jesus that chooses authenticity. So we open the Bible. I can't tell you all the answers to who God is this morning. We work on this together. We're committed to a few things. First of all, it's okay for Anthony to say, I don't know how to make myself grow. It's okay for Anthony and Abby to sing, am I alone, God? I can't find my faith. We'll work on this question together, all of us. No conversation off the table. It's all valid from your perspective and mine. To live with a useful faith, friends, that's what we're attempting to do in 2018. It's a faith that has to make sense here, where we live. For a long time, Christianity has insisted that we have some tenets of faith and it's better for Christians to obey than to understand. This has not turned out well for us. So students, welcome to La Sierra because in this academic community, this is what we mean when we say our faith is 2,000 years old, but our thinking is not. We're looking for a faith that works today. It has to answer today's questions, today's queries. Here's another book I referenced before I close. This one's a little more scary, and I'm going to tell you the truth. Bishop John Shelby Spung. The book is called Unbelievable. Bishop Spung is now 87 years old and still writing and deciding that he would like to tell us what he really thinks at 87 years of age. It'll be too much for most of us. Here's one thing he says at 87 years of age. I have decided that when we ask for obedience instead of understanding, we have done a great disservice. We haven't allowed people to grow up to something beyond juvenile faith. When we don't know how to reconcile our explosions of knowledge about our world and our bodies and our thinking and our creations, what we've tended to do is hunker down and repeat the same things we've always said in our changing world. We offer bankrupt concepts, he says, and people have found out. I'm looking to find words, he says, for a God, a three-letter word that will allow me to express a growing faith, a developing faith, a changing faith, an advancing faith that is my home. In that, in that chapter, he ends by saying, I have decided that I would rather die of controversy than boredom. It will be a challenging read if you pick this one up. He says, I have a formula. This is all I know. 
Right now, after 87 years of age, being a Christian minister, leader, bishop my entire life, this is what I know. God is, because God is, I live, and I love, and I am. I cannot explain God, but I can trust this experience. For four weeks, we want to talk about this. I can't explain God either. I can tell you where my conviction is today. Everything good about our lives, God has done. And everything traumatic with our lives, God would love to resolve. This much of this much, church, I am sure. Be dismissed with the God whose presence never fails, with the Jesus who promises to be our liberator, and with the Spirit will will show us how. Amen.